we are getting near the end of Galatians. We have three more, um, three more sermons here in chapter five and chapter six, and and uh, thank John for helping helping out last week and bringing the word to us. Um, really dealing with a you know, one of the more difficult passages. But to try to get us to where we are right now, let's kind of back up and review. And, and what we're finding here is um, what Paul is doing is he's trying to help the Galatians understand there's only one true gospel. Uh, you cannot have a gospel of law. The only true gospel is the gospel of grace. And the second thing that he's trying to help them understand is that the gospel of law is incompatible with the gospel of grace. One is going to cancel out the other. You cannot have both. And we talked this, about this on Wednesday night, that it seems like the Galatians thought they could have both. It's almost like the Galatians were thinking like, hey, um, Paul, we're not, we're not leaving Jesus behind. We, we still want to have all that Jesus grace stuff. We're just adding on to it. We're adding on this gospel of the law so, you know, we can have our cake and eat it too, as they say. But Paul is trying to help them understand it's incompatible because the gospel of law enslaves you, or for worse, it keeps you enslaved. It keeps you enslaved to yourself. It keeps you enslaved to sin. It keeps you enslaved, as Paul says, to the elementary principles of the world. But only the gospel of grace will free you. And today we're going to talk more about what that means. But the gospel of grace frees you to love. If you just go back to that point of the gospel of law enslaves you to self sin, elementary principles, understand what the gospel of grace does. And this is going to help us understand what Paul means by freedom. The gospel of grace frees you from all of those things that enslave you, including yourself, including you. Any notion of freedom, meaning to do whatever I want to do. That's just another way of talking about slavery, being a slave to your wants and your desires. The gospel of grace frees you from that. If you're looking for that kind of freedom, if you're looking for the freedom to do whatever you want, you're not gonna find it in the Bible. You're not gonna find it in the gospel of grace. And so Paul has that verse that is kind of like a, it's kind of like a saddle verse, it, it, a seam verse. It connects everything that happened before. And John showed us last week how it connected to the Hagar-Sarah story. But it also is introducing what's to come. And that's verse 1 where, where Paul says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. And it's that word freedom 
the word freedom that, you know, there's certain words in the Bible that we just lose our brains. You know, one of them is freedom, another one is love. And people love these verses because if you take them out of context, you can make freedom mean whatever you want it to mean. And of course, again, the most, the most uh, popular one is to say the freedom to do whatever I want. You know, but some of us, we're a little better than that. We have a little bit better um, way of talking about it. And we, we'll say, well, it's not freedom to do whatever I want. It's freedom to do what I want as long as I don't hurt anyone else. And so we, we kind of condition a little, and we think that makes us feel better. It shouldn't make you feel better because that concept of freedom, as I've said before, breaks down when two kids want the same cookie. When two kids want the same toy, both kids are trying to express this kind of freedom to do what I want, but they can't do the other one as long as I don't hurt someone else. Either they're going to be hurt and not get what they want, or they're going to hurt the other person and get what they want. That notion of freedom, it, it fails, not just at the cookie level. It fails at every level. Every time, as we've just gone through the Olympics, every time there's a gold medal winner, there's a whole bunch of gold medal losers. And I can guarantee you, one thing I know about athletes, and especially world-class athletes, they all want the gold medal. You see, that's where that concept of freedom leads to this lie, and it's the, it's the most popular, persistent lie. You know, parents tell their kids this all the time. Well-meaning adults tell children this. That you, you, you can be what, whatever you want to be. You, you have the freedom to be whatever you want to be. And I'm not telling you that you should sit down with your child at this point and say, you know, son, daughter, been watching you, analyzing you, and uh, pretty sure these are your seven options. Do one of these seven. So I'm not telling you that you should tell people they should be limited, but you shouldn't tell people they should, they're unlimited. You shouldn't be giving them the lie that we can be whatever we want to be. In fact, I don't want to go off on this. I'm just going to mention it. We can talk about it afterwards over cookies outside. But, but one of the, the most, that, that persistent lie has morphed into what's fundamentally wrong with our society today, where people don't just grow up believing they can be whatever they want to be, they grow up believing they have the right to be whatever they want to be. And you, not allowing them to do it, is getting in the way of their freedom. That's how anarchy happens. Everybody going around demanding that they have the right to be whatever they want to be. That's not how a healthy society will work. 
We need, we need to leave behind that notion of freedom, and we need to embrace what the Bible is talking about as freedom. That notion of freedom is deadly, and it will ultimately fail. Well, a similar thing is done with love, and we're, you know, the title says faith working through love. We're going to talk about love, and again, it's another one of those words where people just, they lose their minds. You know, people understand the importance of love. They understand it, but the problem is they, they want to retain control. They want to retain control over how to define it. So they can praise love, they can say it's important, but they don't want to give it any content. Love is to be valued as long as it's ambiguous and vague. As long as it's some kind of romantic or sentimental feeling or somehow, you know, fulfilling of myself, then I'm good with love. But we, if someone tries to define it, if someone tries to be a little more specific, uh, you know, Let's just leave the details out and agree that love is a good thing. And so we live in this world where people know love is important. They sense it. But they think they can love without God. They think that they can do it on their own. In fact, that's the problem with the gospel of law and gospel of grace. Gospel of grace says... The God who loves you, he pours out grace on you. He pours out love on you. The gospel of law says, I either have this love inside of myself or I'm going to generate it. I'm going to create it. I'm going to become better at all of this stuff on my own. And as we've said before, one thing Christianity says right up front is what God expects. His standard is impossible for us to do alone. And so we think we can, we can love without God. You know, we, th- we think that, that if it's just somehow, you know, it's inside of us, it just has to be unlocked. And it's like, no. The Bible says it isn't inside of you. Oh, something like love is there. And it's not a terrible thing, but it's not the love that the Bible talks about. You see, when we actually bring freedom and love together, we realize the world's definitions of those two words are actually incompatible. You know, um, if I had you know, when I first met Cheryl, if I had told Cheryl, like, I love you, I, I am free to marry you, I will marry you, and you will love me. Well, I'm expressing my freedom, I'm expressing my love. But if she had said, ah, sorry, sir, you're a bit mistaken there. How dare she step on my freedom? How dare she do something to my love? 
it's weird. These things obviously don't make any sense. But we keep using these definitions and throwing them together. See, when we think about both of these, love and freedom, love and freedom, they require certain things. They, first of all, require ability. They require opportunity. And they actually require the, the right desire, the right motivation. And what the Bible teaches us is though we have opportunity to show freedom, we have opportunity to love, we don't have the ability, nor do we have the desire. That's the gospel. The gospel of grace, the gospel of Jesus Christ says, if we have faith in Jesus, Jesus will change our desires. The Spirit will empower us to love. And what verse 1 is telling us is that through Christ, we have freedom to love as only God can love. We have freedom to love as only God can love. We have freedom to love unconditionally. We have freedom to love sacrificially. We have freedom to love selflessly. Remember, we're enslaved to self. As long as you're enslaved to self, you can never love selflessly. Somewhere mixed in your love, outside of Christ, is something about you. Maybe it's, you know, your, your guilt. Maybe it's your desire to be wanted or to be accepted. Maybe it's your, your desire to, to feel good about helping somebody else. Again, not necessarily bad things, but they're all based in the self. That has, that has to change if it's going to be selfless as God loves And I've talked about this before, but whenever we, when I think about God's high standard for love, the ultimate expression of love in, God's, in, in what we find in God's Word is that Jesus loves his enemies while they are killing him. He loves his enemies while they are torturing him while they are mocking him. Not before the fact, not after the fact, while it's happening. And every time I think about that, I know on my own, I cannot do that. On my own, if that was happening to me, if my enemies were actively doing something to me, the last thing on my mind would be loving them. And yet we see this great display of love. And so Paul is trying to help the Galatians understand this. To understand that faith in Jesus Christ is the only path to freedom from all of these things that enslave us. But also to the freedom to love as only God can love.
So Paul starts this next section, and he says, look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. If the point wasn't clear to the Galatians, and if the point's not clear to you, Paul's making it clear here. Gospel of law, gospel of grace, incompatible. Look back at what he says. He says back in, in, um, in verse 2, he says, if you accept circumcision, and he's using circumcision to talk about the law because that's probably the big thing that was being told to these Galatian Christians who were either Gentiles or Hellenized Jews who hadn't been circumcised. And, and they were probably being told, look, 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 you've you got to be circumcised. That really makes you, you know, part of the family. Really, you know, kind of seals that covenant. And think about it. You know, the Galatian Christians, we don't have any evidence that the Galatian Christians were persecuted. It hasn't really happened yet. When Paul is going out after, um, you know, when, when he's persecuting the church, he's actually going after traditional Jewish people who are becoming Christians. That's who he's after. He's not going to touch the Gentiles. In fact, he could get in trouble for touching the Gentiles because a lot of them are Roman citizens. He's not going to mess with them. Eventually, persecution on the, on the Gentile Christians is going to come from, from other Gentiles. And so you think about it. What happened to them? Paul came through, um, other Christian missionaries had come through, people um, became Christians, they were baptized, there was some manifestation of the Holy Spirit in their lives, their lives were different, you know, they were, they were moving away from, from the life that they had lived before, but you know, there's still this sense in them probably like, we haven't really earned it. And so, when the Judaizers start talking about circumcision, and you really start thinking about circumcision, not encouraging you to do that right now, but when you think about it, then what what does that mean? It means, I'm going to suffer for Christ. I'm going to make this commitment. I'm going to... I'm going to make myself permanently look different from how I looked before. I'm going to have these, this outward manifestation. And it's going to be a constant reminder to me. Wow, that's, that's way better than baptism. You know, we get baptized, you get wet, and then you dry off. You know, I mean, how many of you, after you got baptized, were like debilitated for three or four days? 
Now, maybe the pastor wasn't really good and he kept you under and you went into a coma, but most of you, you went down, you came up, it was it. And, and if you have this sense that, that you need to prove your commitment to Christ, hey, circumcision, it's a way. It's attractive. But they're doing more than that. They're not only believing it's a sign, they're believing it's necessary. There, there's, Paul's not saying there's anything wrong with circumcision. He's circumcised. He's not saying there's even anything wrong with going to the temple and offering sacrifices. He does that too. But when you make these things necessary for salvation, that's when the problem happens. That's when you begin trusting in man and trusting in yourself. And instead of trusting in God and Christ and Christ alone. And so the first thing he says is, Christ will be of no advantage to you. The way that's probably better translated is something to the effect of Christ is not going to be of any help to you. Not because Christ can't help you, and not because Christ has his arms folded and say, I'm not going to help you. No, it's because you are not going to, you're not going to lean on him. You're not going to trust him. You're not going to follow him. You're not going to do any of that. Instead, you're going to go do your own thing. There's no help. The second thing he says is, you're obligated to keep the whole law. And this is the worst plan ever. This is the worst plan ever. Let's say you were going to choose between two life insurance plans, and you were looking at the prices, and you then looked at the details, and this one was cheaper better rated, will pay off in the end. This one, more expensive, not as good rated, and you get nothing. Anybody buying option B? If you are, by the way, I could probably sell it to you um, because you get nothing, so I don't have to worry about anything. Of course we wouldn't take option B, but that's what's happening here. These people are saying, oh, we want to follow this gospel of law. We're going to follow it. And Paul says, okay, if you take option B, you are obligated to keep the whole law. Because if you really understand Scripture, that's what it's saying. And even if you do, you still don't merit salvation. He's not saying, hey, if you can, if you can do this impossible thing, this one in a billion thing, if you, if you hit the lottery, you strike it rich, you, you, you're going to, you'll, you'll be saved. He goes, no. You're obligated to do it. You're going to have to do it because that's the path you've chosen. But at the end of that path is not righteousness, not reconciliation, not salvation. And then the third thing he says is, and again, he is using this imagery of circumcision, but he says, you're severed from Christ. You're severed from Christ, and you've fallen away from grace. He says, you cannot have it both ways. You cannot...
keep seeking to retain control. You cannot keep trying to earn your righteousness and at the same time hold on to Christ. Because Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ, is not about your self-righteousness, but about his righteousness that he gives to you. And so, again, there's, there's, there's nothing wrong with wanting to follow the Mosaic law. What's wrong is when you think the Mosaic law is what saves you. Even if you're taking what I think is some of the Galatians' position, which is, yeah, we need, we need both. Paul's saying, no, you cannot have both. And through all of this, Paul comes to me at one of the great summary statements of Christianity. Where he says in verse 6, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but only faith working through love. True faith in Jesus working through love is all that matters. Sometimes this is translated in your Bibles as expressing itself in love. I think both are, are, are good, but what's happening is, is faith and love are, are, are tied together. They're connected. You cannot have true faith without true love. You cannot have true love without true faith. As I was running yesterday, I was listening to a a C.S. Lewis book and some of, some of his fictional books. And um, he's, he's got this very droll sense of humor. And he's, he's writing about how, he's writing this short story about how one of his former students calls him up and says, hey, I'd like to come over for a visit. And he says, fine. And so his student shows up but he brings his fiancée with him. And C.S. Lewis is writing about, he's not saying it's him, he's the character, but you know it's him. He goes, one of the things I hate <laughs> is when someone says they're coming over to visit and they bring someone else that they don't tell you about. You know, because he had thought we were going to talk about all these things, but now what are we going to talk about? Well, some people think they can just have faith. I just want faith. I just want to believe. That's all. But faith, faith brings his friend love. They're inseparable. They're inseparable. Some people think like, well, you know what? I'm really attracted to that message of love that I find in Scripture, so I just want the love. I just, I just want the love. You know, that faith part, you know, all that Jesus stuff, that cross, it's kind of bloody. Um, you know, I don't really want to deal with that. I just want, I just want the love part. And so they, 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 they come to this this sense of like, all right, if I, if I can just 
go straight to love. But you can't. We just said it's impossible. You can't go straight to love. The Bible makes it really clear that we must first go to the cross. We must first go to Jesus. We must be changed. And so in this summary statement, we find this this connection, this essential connection between faith and love. And, And what Paul says is, that's all that matters. Circumcision, uncircumcision, doesn't matter. Faith, working itself through love. Faith in Jesus Christ. Faith that, that means that we, we receive the Spirit. This faith that gives us hope. It's this faith that results in love, not sometimes, every time. You want to know if you have true faith in Jesus Christ? Do you love like God loves? Do you love like God loves? Or are you still a slave to yourself? Is your love still, still stained with, with just so much of who you are? Where there's just people you just cannot love. And I'm not even talking about enemies. I think some of us have an easier time loving enemies than we do the other people in the church. or other people sometimes in our families. Do we love? Do you know not just the receipt of God's love, which is awesome, but do you know the presence of God's love in your life? Now, let me make sure you understand something. I say this every time I talk about love because I want to make sure people understand. There's a difference between love and the expression of love. When we're believers in Jesus Christ, the Bible tells us we become born of God. And those who are born of God, we love because it is God's nature to love. We've been born of God. We love because it's now our nature. It's not a choice. If you're truly a Christian, it's not a choice whether to love somebody or not. The choice comes in in how you express that love. How am I going to express the love? That's where the choice comes in. For the Christian, that's not only where the choice comes in, that's where all the problems happen too. Because we aren't always good at it. We don't always express love the best way possible. We don't always express love in the right way, in right situations. You know, if you've parented, you you know this. I'm assuming you love your kids and you love them the whole time. But in that love, you had to determine how to express it. And sometimes the expression was yes and sometimes the expression was no. And sometimes you got it wrong. 
you, you said yes when you should have said no, and you said no when you should have said yes. But the question was, was, what was it motivated by? The expressions we will have choices. The expressions we will be good and bad at. The expressions we can get totally wrong. But what are we actually expressing? Well, if I have faith in Jesus Christ, as John tells us in 1 John, I should be expressing love in every situation. In every situation. And this is why I tell you the impossible standard. The impossible standard. You know, the other way I talk about the impossible standard is to say this, that God wants us to love everyone perfectly all the time. That's hard. That's impossible. You see, I could, like, try to love my wife perfectly. And if I, if I did that, but I wasn't loving everybody else around me perfectly too, I'd fall in short of what God expects. It's, it's the struggle we have sometimes, you know, where, where like if you're, if you're a teacher in a class and you have that one student who you know is just, you know, probably doesn't have a great home life, you know, acting out and all this stuff, and, and you want to love them, and you love that one kid, and you, everybody else gets hurt because you're not teaching them. You're only teaching that one kid. I think that's why God in a healthy community, places us in, in situations where, where we, we, we are raised and our children are raised in a healthy situation where there's multiple healthy adult role models and teachers and mentors that come in and help. Because even with our own kids, it's difficult. It's difficult to love perfectly everyone, all the time. Any sense of an us-them mentality, standards not going to be met. I can't fixate on the one, I can't fixate on the many. It's everyone. Each and everyone. Again, this is why we need faith in Jesus Christ. This is why we need the gospel of grace. This is why the gospel of law can never work. Because I don't care how hard you work, you will never be able to love everyone perfectly all the time. And so Paul is trying to make this point. He's trying to say, this is, this is what you're leaving this is the power. This is the beauty. This is the mystery. This is the magnificence, the genius of Christianity, the genius of God, that he would make us in this way. He would make this world in this way, and he would provide salvation in this way that he brings together faith and love that empowers you to do the thing that you want to do, that you really want to do, if you get over yourself 
And he allows you to do it in a way you could never do. And this is what's mystifying to Paul. And that's why he he goes back in verse 7 where he says, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view. And the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Paul is so, he's so upset, and he's, he's, he's upset because he knows what they're losing, what they're leaving, and he knows what they're talking, that, that, you know, that they're kind of talking themselves into. Oh, we're not, you know, we're just, it's just a little thing. Just one thing. Come on, Paul. And it makes Paul look very unreasonable. You know, because you have the Judaizers over here, and then you have the Galatian Christians here, and then you have Paul. And Paul is the one, he's the hard line. He's saying, no, there is, when it comes to truth and what is false, a little bit of false is going to, is going to wipe out truth, especially on something so important. And the Judaizers look, look kind of reasonable because they're over here going, guys, we're not telling you forget Jesus. You can keep Jesus. You just you just also have to do this other thing too. It's, it's the problem we have when we believe in absolute truth. When you believe in absolute truth, walking down the middle of the road, unless that's where truth is, is not the place to be. Trying to moderate, that's how it leads to syncretism. Paul knows this, and in very harsh language, he tries to tell them, don't do this. But he believes that they are believers. And I think that brings us to this very sobering point that true believers can still be led astray. That true believers in Jesus Christ you can still be led astray. That's why we need a healthy church. That's why we need discipleship. That's why we need humility in our own lives and never think that, you know, I'm, I got this Christian thing down. Pretty good at it. No. Humility. Any prayer. We need each other. And we, we, we always act like these things are kind of optional. They're not optional. God provided them for us because one, it's an expression of who we are in Christ. But second of all, they help us. They protect us. They guide us. I worry so much about Christians who think that 
that they can just sort all this out on their own. Ah, they might come to church. You know, they might show up at a Bible study. But they're only showing up at the Bible study or the church not to try to learn and to grow. They're just kind of there to, you know, see how everybody else is doing. No, we need to... We need to grow. We need to be actively growing in the Lord and not on our own. The Christian life was never meant to be lived alone. It was always meant to be lived in community. And unfortunately, probably 30, 40, 50 years of the 20th century in, in the United States, this version of Christianity just kept being put out there that, that no, you can do this on your own, Church is optional. Community is optional. It's not optional. It's, it's essential. Paul's last point is this. He says, for you were called to freedom, brothers. So he's connecting back to what he said in verse 1. He says, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Paul is tying together freedom. He's tying together faith. He's tying together love. And for this verse, he kind of doesn't mention the faith part. He's, he's just going to talk about the freedom and the love. And he says this, you want to know if you're free in Christ? You want to know if you, if, you, if you have really experienced freedom in Christ that comes from faith in Jesus Christ? Then you will know it because you will, you will humbly and lovingly serve one another. You will humbly and lovingly serve one another. That's what freedom is. Freedom is, true freedom in Christ is the freedom to serve each other out of love for one another. That's how it's expressed. You see, if all of your beliefs, if all of your knowledge, if all of your piety does not lead to a greater love for God and a greater love for each other, it's worthless. worthless. Again, we can't go straight to love. We have to go through beliefs. We have to gain knowledge. We want to have a sense of piety in our lives. But all of that should lead to a greater love for God and a greater love for one another. And that is shown in how we serve one another. It's not just shown in how we serve one another. It's also shown in our, our own lives and how we feel about one another. Paul will write later on in Ephesians, in another letter, he'll say, you know, he'll talk about what it means to be in the body of Christ, and he'll say that we, we submit to one another in love. In another place, he says, he says we, we want to outdo one another in showing honor to each other. 
loving service. That's what should, that's what should happen. That's what, that's what should grow. If you're a new Christian, baby Christian, hey, just be a good baby. You know, just hang out, grow, learn, everything. But as you grow, the thing that you're going to see grow in your life is not just love, but love that leads to wanting to serve one another, help one another. Paul says, if you go after the gospel of law, he gives us, you know, what's going to happen, and he's going to unpack this more next week. But he says, you're going to start devouring one another. There's no freedom you have. It's not the freedom to do whatever you want to do. It's freedom that, that allows you to love and to serve. It's pretty amazing. I'll tell you, I, I sometimes talk about what I think is the mark of a maturing Christian or the mark of a maturing church. And one of them I've talked about before is reconciliation. How quickly do we resolve conflicts with each other? I think that's a mark of your own personal maturity. How long can you live with a grudge or with a dispute or a conflict? The longer you can live with that, the lower your spiritual maturity the more quickly you want to rectify that and reconcile that and, and to enjoy the fellowship with that brother or sister, that shows incredible maturity. But what Paul's talking about here is the second mark. The second mark is loving service. Not just service. The person who's working the hardest, moving the fastest, they're not necessarily the most mature but it's service that's coming from our love for God, our love from God, and our love for each other. I don't serve to be recognized. I don't serve so that I feel better about myself. If I serve, I serve because I love. And the more that takes hold in your life, that's the evidence of spiritual maturity. I've lived long enough and been in enough places to know, you know, people in, in seminary, seminary professors who have, you know, more knowledge than all of us combined, but not so sure about the loving service part. And I know other people who get these two things right. It's about reconciliation. It's about loving service. It's the marks of a healthy church. Faith expressing itself through love. All the joy that comes with love also directs us challenges us, pushes us to uncomfortable situations, 
to, to strange situations, to unfamiliar situations, to even dangerous situations. Why else would missionaries go to some of the most dangerous countries in the world when they could serve God right here? Be careful with that faith, because when it's true, it will unleash love. And love will lead you to some incredible places, but also places that as long as self is in control, you're not going to want to go.